like you to turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24. And the theme of tonight's sermon is God's hand behind the coronavirus. 2 Samuel 24, God's hand behind the coronavirus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you please come and work by your spirit and show us wonderful things out of your law. Open our eyes to behold in the face of Jesus Christ, reveal to us your glory. Amen. If you see a book, you know, an old book that someone gave you, but the title page is torn off. So it's just a, a white cover on the front of the book. And you don't know what the book's about. Let's say the first few pages are torn out. How will you know what the book is about? There's no index page. There's no title cover. Well, if you read a couple of pages, and let's say, for instance... Every fourth sentence, or at least every paragraph, you find the word cricket. Or you find the word Rolls-Royce. Well, then you know, alright, at least the chapter's about this. And if you flip over a few pages, or maybe even 50 pages at a turn, and you still read the word cricket, and cricket, and bowling, and batting, and cricket, well, then you know the book's about cricket. And the same with the Bible, that if you see a word that is repeated often, for instance, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you see the word throne repeated, and specifically referring to the throne of God 15 times in those two chapters. So you know, ah, this is John's point. And if you take it wider, and you see John's point is to say that even though these plagues will come and... Um, these terrible disasters and so on, God is on the throne. God rules over all. God controls everything. And his hand is even behind the coronavirus, as we'll see in a moment. So we're going to look at three sets of characters. The first is David and Job in verse 1 to 9. I remember in 2004 a man said to me, to say that the tsunami, that tsunami that hit Thailand and parts of Indonesia, to say that the tsunami is from God is blasphemy. Well, who was it then? Who did send the tsunami? Was it, was it Satan? Well, well, maybe. Maybe, like in the book of Job, you see Satan kills Job's ten children on one day. Uh, a strong east wind comes, and you see lightning comes from heaven and burns up all Job's sheep. And Satan is behind that, and and you see in chapter 2, Job get, gets boils, he gets these sores oozing with pus, and, and uh, Satan's behind that. But who's behind that? Who's the first cause? Satan is the second cause. The first cause, God says to Satan, thus far you may go. You may do this to Job. You may do that to Job. You do not touch him. Chapter 1. All right, now you can touch him, but you spare his life. So God is behind even that. What about 
another example in the New Testament, the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is killed, he's murdered. The Jews, the Romans, Pontius Pilate, King Herod, Judas, Satan. But who's behind even that? God. God determines and decrees and plans and predestines that his son would die on a Roman cross. Acts 2.23, Acts 4.27 and 28. So who's behind the coronavirus? Is it God or is it the devil? Well, it's both. In verse 1 we read, Again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. And then God sends the pestilence in chapter 24.15. But if you read the parallel, and we're going to do this a lot, I'm going to be referring to the parallel passage, which is the same story, and you've got a bit of extra detail and some detail left out because he wants to make his point. If you put the two stories together, you get the whole. But in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, it says, Satan incited David to number the people. So who did it? Was it Satan or God? Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5. We see this morning's passage. Um, we see that, that God sent the, this pestilence and he killed, with tumors, he killed the Philistines. But in Luke 13, verse 11 and 16, we, we read of a disabling spirit. We read of Satan who bound this woman so she couldn't walk upright for 18 years. So what's the point? What's the point here? Is, is God and Satan in cahoots? Is God working with the devil? Well, no. So how does it work? Well, there's a doctrine called the doctrine of concurrence, which means God is working through this action and through the same action. People are doing their things, or angels, or demons, or Satan. And uh, we, could, we could speak of first and second causes. So a second cause would be, you've got the example of Joseph's brothers who sell him into slavery. They're a second cause. But even behind that, God is the one who sends Joseph to Egypt. And so they, they've got evil intentions. God doesn't have evil intentions. God's got good intentions. God's got righteous intentions. God is full of wisdom when he does what he does. And Joseph even says in Genesis 15, 50, verse 20, to his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Or the king of Assyria, God sends him to, to discipline Israel in Isaiah 10, verse 5 to 7, but it says, but he does not so intend in his heart. So the king of Assyria has got evil intentions. The evil intentions don't come from God. God has got good intentions. So God does control all things. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things, all things, according to the counsel of his will. In your book were written every one of them, days that were formed for me or planned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Psalm 139 verse 16. Uh, Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, he wrote uh, a little pamphlet called Refuse to Look at Second Causes. 
And in the pamphlet, the point of the pamphlet is to, is to say that even though difficult things may come, even though trials may come, may come, even though persecution, even though suffering, whatever bad things come in the life of a Christian, I will not look at second causes. I will not look at, look at what this person did. Look at what Satan did. I will look at the first cause. I will look at God and say, God is sovereign. God is working this together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And you know, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God helps Christians in times of sickness and in times of trial. It helps us to know God is in control, even of the deepest suffering I go through. God is in control. It's not Satan who controls everything. God does. Now we see in our passage, in verse 1, it says, the Lord, again, the Lord was angry with Israel. Again, meaning he was angry before uh, in chapter 21, he was angry with Israel. Now, in this text, the passage does not tell us why he was angry with Israel. And the point is, we don't always have to know why God does what he does. We must trust his wisdom and righteousness and goodness uh, and holiness. God doesn't have to explain himself to us. So God tells David in verse 1, you go and number the people of Israel. Now, that wasn't a sinful command. It wasn't wrong to number the people. In Numbers chapter 1, Numbers 26, there's a census and the people are numbered. But what happens now is Satan tempts David to pride. If you read 1 Chronicles 21, you see Satan tempts him. Why? Because in chapter 18 of 1 Chronicles, verse 6 and verse 12, we see that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And he conquered his enemies. But now, now Satan is tempting David to say, it's you, it's your strong army. And so he boasts, not in the Lord, but he boasts in himself and he boasts in his army. And so now he wants to see how strong is my army. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We will not trust in our bow. I will not trust in my sword or my spear, whatever weapons. I will trust in the Lord my God. You see, a king is nothing without his people. Without, without people, a prince is ruined, says the book of Proverbs. And there are four things that are stately in their stread and stately in their stride. They walk upright with chest puffed out and puffed up because they're proud and they, they're bold. It's a lion and a he-goat and a strutting rooster and a king whose army is with him. And so David... But it's, according to the Bible, cursed is the one who places his trust in man. Now, perhaps David even did not obey Exodus 30, verse 11 to 16, where God says that if you do take a census, then atonement money must be paid. Each person must pay a shekel of silver. So that's atonement money. Now, perhaps David didn't obey that command, and maybe that's the reason why God's anger came and judgment came uh, we, don't, we don't know the text does not tell us but now he tells his uh, nephew Joab and we know Joab is his nephew from First Chronicles 2 he tells his nephew and you're the commander of the army Joab so I want you to go and you're going to count the people you're going to go from Dan to Beersheba which is basically the whole country from north to south you're going to count my army and you'll return and tell me and Joab just does not want to do this. Job can see through David. He sees the pride of David. Uh, verse 3, he doesn't want to do this. And he, he does not 
want the judgment of God upon the nation. And he knows God's going to punish them. First Chronicles 21 verse 3. It's like David's blind. He doesn't see this coming. Even Joab, who's not a very moral man, he, he knows better than David. But of course, David, his word has got more power than Joab's. He's the king. And so he tells these generals and he tells Joab, you're going to do this, you captains of the army, you're going to count the people. And they have no choice. They have to do it. Verse 4. And so they start toward the east of Jerusalem. They cross the Jordan River and then go south, past the Dead Sea, and they go uh, east even further. And they come to Arua, which is a town on that side of Israel. And then they go north, and then they go anti-clockwise. Counterclockwise, they go around the country of Israel, come to the Mediterranean Sea at Tyre, and then go down. And then eventually come to Beersheba in the south, and then they return to Jerusalem. Verse 5 to 8. You can read all the place names there and even check it out on a map. And all of this takes nine months, 20 days, verse 8. So this is probably a couple of hundred kilometers. And in the end, the figures are given in verse 9. 800,000 soldiers in Israel, 500,000 soldiers in Judah. Now, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 5 tells us it's 1.1 million soldiers in Israel, not 800,000. And then 470,000 in Judah instead of 500,000. So do we have a contradiction here in the Bible? Well, no. The Bible cannot contradict itself. It's the word of God, and God does not lie, and God does not contradict himself. So what's going on here? Well, Samuel tells us it's 800,000 soldiers in Israel, and they're ready for war. These men can fight, but then you've got 300,000 troops on reserve. And we learn that from 1 Chronicles chapter 27. And it's really 288,000, but if you round it off to the nearest 100,000, that would be 300,000. And so 800,000 in Samuel plus the 300,000 reserves in 1 Chronicles 27 gets you to a figure of 1.1 million as it's mentioned in 1 Chronicles 21. And then Judah, uh, Samuel tells us that there are 500,000 soldiers, but Chronicles says only, only 470,000. So um, what do we make of that? Well, 1 Chronicles 21, 6 says, During the census, Joab had not quite gotten the job done. And he didn't count Benjamin. So this author of 2 Samuel probably knew, Oh, right, all right, so, so Samuel or Joab didn't get the job done, didn't count Benjamin. That's probably another, what, 30,000 troops? And so you've got 470,000 plus the 30,000 gets you to the figure of 500,000 in 2 Samuel 24. Why, why didn't Joab count Benjamin? Hmm. Or Levi, for that matter, according to 1 Chronicles 21, verse 6. Well, David's pride, it was an abomination. He hated See, look how proud, proud David is. He just wanna, wants to see how, how many soldiers and how strong he is. And he hated that. And then also that the plague had already begun. Or God's punishment had already begun at least on the people of Israel. 1 Chronicles 21 verse 7. And also 1 Chronicles 27 24 says, Because the plague came, they couldn't finish the sentence. Let me just jump to that verse in 1 Chronicles 27 verse 24. 
we read, Jah the son of Zeruah began to count but didn't yet finish, yet wrath came on Israel for all this, and the number wasn't entered in the chronicles of, the king, of, of king David. So he couldn't get the job done, and that's why he didn't count Benjamin. And also he didn't want to. And isn't that also the reason for the coronavirus? We're just like King David. We are proud. We are proud of our own abilities, like the people in Genesis 11 when they built the Tower of, Tower of Day, uh, Babel. Just look at us. Look how wonderful we are. We're proud of our abilities, proud of technology and science and our knowledge and our, our status and our wealth and riches and whatever else. Nothing can bring man down, can it? Not even God. And then God brings the whole world to a standstill by sending something invisible to the human eye. And he kills people by the thousands through the coronavirus. And he says to human beings, you arrogant human beings, I will crash your whole world economy by sending an invisible virus. And he shows people that he shows to man that man and his idols and his, and his ancestor worship and his superstitions and his prosperity gospel and his chasing after money and chasing pleasure and his so-called freedom and his independence as he thinks he's independent and all his knowledge and his pride is nothing in the sight of the living God. Where is our boasting now when the coronavirus strikes? Where is our boasting to say, oh, the Bible is old-fashioned. We've moved on. Where's our boasting? No, God didn't create the world. It was the Big Bang. It's the product of evolution. Oh, well, then let evolution help us against the coronavirus. Where's our boasting when we say we are free, we are not under God's decree, under God's order, under God's design of maleness and femaleness, masculinity and femininity. You can choose your own gender. You can choose whether you be he or she or they be or maybe or z or z or whatever. Love is love. You can have sex with whom you want. You don't need marriage. We don't need marriage between a man and a wife. We can, we can just deal with AIDS. We can just deal with our AIDS our own way. We can sleep around as we please and just use certain contraceptions and contraceptives to stop us from getting AIDS. And if you do fall pregnant, well, you know the motto, my body, my choice. You can murder the baby if you please. And we've murdered them by the millions, more than coronavirus has ever and will ever kill. We've murdered them by the millions, more than World War I and II combined. And then we continue, if those kids are not murdered and they grow up, you can't tell your children what to do. You can't tell what kids, kids what to do. Their rights first, you cannot spank them. That is against the law. And then we leave them and we don't spank them and we don't discipline them. And they burn down schools and burn down campuses, university campuses. And then these teenagers come and they tell the United Nations what to do. And the United Nations allow it. As Greta Thunberg, Thunberg did not many months ago. You don't even need rules. Look at people boast. Who needs rules? Who needs order? You can smoke marijuana. 
You can take farms for yourself. You don't need to pay for it. You can just steal them from, from farmers. You can take as many wives as you please. You can burn down school buses and destroy city halls. You can, like happens in South Africa, you can just ignore traffic lights. It doesn't matter. Who cares? You see it every week. You don't need to be responsible. You are not accountable to anyone. We don't know what happened with the 55 million that was given to the municipality. Who knows? Who cares? Corruption. Look at people boast. We will sue you. We will take you to court for hate speech. We will, we will expel you from the Australian Rugby Union if you quote Bible verses and say that homosexuality is a sin. Or in the United Kingdom, we will close down your restaurant if you've got a screen in your restaurant where Bible verses are quoted. All of us, all of us, we think too much of ourselves. We want the applause of others. We want people to like our posts on Facebook and whatever we say. Look at me. Look at my status on WhatsApp. I want to be the center of attention. Things must happen according to my desires, my way or the highway. Repent of your sin. Bow the knee before the triune God of the Bible. And if you will not do that, and if you continue exalting yourself, then I say to you the coronavirus is a joke compared to the anger of God that will be unleashed on this world when Jesus Christ returns in flaming fire with all his holy angels. I do not wish for that. That will be a day of terror. That will be a day of fear. Do not desire the day of the Lord. It's not a day of light, but a day of darkness, Amos tells us. It's like running away from a lion and running into a bear. Isaiah wished that the day of the Lord would come, and when it did, he trembled. He trembled. Isaiah 21 verse 4, he said, I'm sorry that I wished for that day to come. Do not put God to the test. Do not mock God. Do not challenge God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire. So there you have the first set of characters, David and Joab. Number two, David and Gad, verse 10 to 17. So I think there's, a, there's an error going around on WhatsApp and Facebook during this coronavirus. I don't think it's wrong for Christians to encourage one another. Uh, we should encourage one another, and people use Exodus 12 to say the Israelites were under lockdown um, with a final plague, and they were protected by God. Or people send around Psalm 91, a wonderful psalm, and they say, no plague shall come near your tent. God will protect you. And I think they're quoting these chapters out of their context. And they're not using it biblically as it should be used. I plan to preach on Psalm 91 next week. But the implication is, oh, so we're under lockdown. We're under protection like the Israelites. Oh, so Christians cannot get the coronavirus. Oh, so anyone who does get the coronavirus is not a Christian. Oh, so those who do not get the coronavirus must be Christians. 
What do you do with Job chapter 2? Where Job, who is a righteous man, gets sick. Are you going to follow the theology of his friends? And say, oh, Job, you've got the coronavirus. That's because you sinned. Oh, Job, you've got these boils. It's because you sinned. What are you going to do with Psalm 73? Where some wicked people don't have many of the troubles that Christians have. Are you going to say it's because they, they're Christians, even though they're wicked? Your view of right and wrong is not determined by whether you get sick or not. To say, oh, I must have done wrong, or oh, God is pleased with me, I'm not sick. Your and my view of right and wrong is determined by the Word of God. And your conscience should get in line. And your conscience will tell you, you're doing wrong. Or, this is right, you're on the right track. This is what happened with David. Verse 10, David's heart struck him after he had known with the people. David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. So he realized his conscience told him, you're sinning, David. You've done wrong. And then it's, the word of God is also brought to him in verse 11. So this prophet comes to him in verse 12. Go say to David, thus says the Lord. So there's the word of God that tells him, this is how you determine what is right and wrong. And then David confesses his sin in verse 10. But then God says, I'm going to punish you, David. I'm going to punish the people. I don't want you to sin against me again. And you need to learn this lesson. So there are three options that the prophet brings in from God. Verse 12 and 13. So the prophet says, so you can choose three years of famine. Now some uh, manuscripts or some translations will say seven years. Uh, that's from the Hebrew. But the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible says three years. And First Chronicles 21 verse 12 says three years. So the oldest translation of the Old Testament, which is the Greek, and we, we, so they had older Hebrew manuscripts than, than many of the manuscripts we had. So they said, right, three years, and I think it fits because it's three years of famine, three years of fleeing from your enemies, and three years of, of pestilence. Um, and that fits. So three years of famine, David, do you choose, or do you choose three months of running away from your enemies fleeing or three days of pestilence in the land and now david has had three years of famine in chapter 21 and he's run away from his enemies for many months when saul hunted him and his own son absalom chased him and so he doesn't want that and now he's very nervous and he's very anxious and he says i'm in very great distress please go back to the lord and say whatever he chooses let me be in the hands of God. God has mercy. Man has no mercy. So please have mercy. Have mercy. Verse 14. And so the pestilence comes in verse 15. From that morning until the time that God has decreed, God has determined and appointed. And note that word. Appointed. God has determined when it will end. Exactly three days later. Because God determines all things. We saw in Ephesians 1.11 earlier. And so it's with the coronavirus. God has determined when the coronavirus will stop. God has determined how many will die and get sick of this virus. He will finish what he appoints for me, Job 23, 14. Now I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be sidetracked or thwarted. Job 42, verse 2. Jeremiah 30, verse 24. The same thing. 
Let me just read that. Jeremiah 30 verse 24. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. And it's exactly the same in this chapter, 2 Samuel 24. So God kills 70,000 people. If only, what, not even 30,000 have died of the coronavirus in four months. 70,000 people in three days. According to verse 15. From the Antibesheba, the whole country. And God kills thousands of people. The exact same people whom David had Joab number. Because David was proud. Look at my army. And God says, I'm going to kill 70,000 of them. So the punishment fits the crime. Now maybe that seems cruel to you. And you want the Jesus of the New Testament. And you say, I want the Jesus of the New Testament. He's kind. He's gentle and loving. He'll never do this. I heard a professor say that. Where he said, Jesus will never kill 70,000 people like in Second Samuel. It's, it's impossible that this is the angel of the Lord. That this is Jesus Christ. Well, who did strike them with a sword then? Well, First Chronicles 21 verse 12 said it was the angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? Well, you can read Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses says, who are you? And he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is your name? I am who I am. So the angel of the Lord is God. And now we read in this passage, God says to the angel of the Lord, do this and that. So God says to God, the Father says to the Son, Jesus in John 8.58 says, I am. Jesus is claiming to be the God of Exodus 3. I am who I am. The God of the burning bush. The angel of the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not saying Jesus is just a mere, he's merely an angel, like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. We're not saying that. Remember, angel means messenger. So Jesus is the messenger of the Father. Or to use the Apostle John's words, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's the Word. He's the messenger. He's the one who reveals the Father to us. John 1 verse 18. And so now God sends this angel of the Lord to Jerusalem to destroy it. Verse 16. And First uh, Chronicles 21 15. And then God has compassion on the people and he feels sorry for them. And he says to the angel of the Lord, draw back your hand. Don't strike Jerusalem, verse 16. And then the angel of the Lord is standing at the threshing floor of Arona, or Ornan, as he's called in First Chronicles 21, 15. Uh, Arona, the Jebus site. Jebus is just the old name for Jerusalem, uh, according to Judges 19. And so David sees the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand and he prays to him, verse 17 and 1 Chronicles 21, 16. And the elders are with David and they bow their faces to the earth and they got sackcloth on their bodies to say, we're mourning, we're repenting, we have sorrow for our sin, 1 Chronicles 21, 16. And David says to the Lord in verse 17, Lord, I counted the people, I have sinned. It's not the people, it's not the Israelites. Let your hand be against me and my family, not against the people. Well, David was wrong because the people had sinned. Verse 1 is clear. God was angry with, with Israel. And it, even though David was wrong, that's not the point. The point is that he's got true sorrow, true remorse, 
true repentance in his heart because of what he had done. He's even, he's even willing to take the consequences. Punish me, don't punish the people. That's true repentance, Second Chronicles, uh, Corinthians 7 verse 11. And we should have true remorse and true sorrow for our sin. Not fake repentance like, like the Egyptians. I'm sorry, I'm crying, crocodile tears. Pharaoh, oh, I'm so sorry, Moses. Please, I'll let you go. Just ask God to take away this plague. And God does it in Exodus 9 and 10. And then Pharaoh just turns back to his sin and hardens his heart. Or like the Israelites in the desert. Fake repentance, flattering God. Oh, Lord, you're killing us. We're sorry. Please forgive us. Psalm 78. 34 to 37, but they're not sorry. That's false sorrow. That's worldly sorrow, as 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 calls, us, calls it. We shouldn't be like that. Oh, Lord, please remove the coronavirus. Please take it away. And then God does, and we just back to our old ways of sin. Last set of characters, number three, David and Arona, in verse 18 to 25. Now, most stories work like this. Starts very calm, very placid. Everything is nice and things are going well. And then something perhaps goes wrong or things build up and it builds up and it builds up to a climax. And then it goes down again. And they lived happily ever after. Well, this is not how this story works. So this story begins with tension. God is angry at Israel. And then it builds up. And it builds up. And then it gets very bad. And then it reaches the climax at the end of the story. So the angel of the Lord sends Gad, the prophet Gad, to David and says, You go and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. Verse 18 in, in First Chronicles 21. Now this is interesting that this threshing floor of Arona is on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Abraham was told you're going to sacrifice your son Isaac. Genesis 22 verse 2. This is Mount Moriah. This is where David, where David had commanded Solomon you have to build the temple. And this is where the threshing floor is, where David now has to bring the sacrifice. First Chronicles 22, 1 and 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. We learn it from comparing these verses. And so David's obedient to the Lord, the command he had given him through Gad, the prophet Gad, verse 19. So he goes to the threshing floor, threshing floor. And on his way there, Arona, he's busy, he's busy threshing wheat with these oxen. And that we learn from First Chronicles 21. And then he sees the angel of the Lord and he sees David and he's afraid. And he gets a fright and he hides before he even sees David. He hides him and his four sons. And then, this is First Chronicles 21, 20. And then in our chapter, verse 20, David sees, uh, Arona sees David coming and, and David's servants. And now he's really afraid, thinking, oh, oh, oh no, why is the king coming to me? And he bows with his face, face to the earth and he says, David, what's going on? And David says, I want to build a, an altar here to the Lord. I want to buy the threshing floor for the full price. And I want to bring the sacrifice so that we can avert or turn aside or turn away the anger of the Lord, the plague. 
And Arona, he just says, Your Majesty, I'll just give you everything for free. You can take it. No charge. You can take the threshing floor and you can build the altar here. You can take the oxen as, uh, to sacrifice them and you can take the wheat that I'm busy threshing and you can use that for a grain offering and you can take the, the yokes and uh, the threshing sledge. You can take all of that, the wood for firewood to bring the sacrifice. And David says, no, no, no. And this is, again, First Chronicles comparing that. And David says, no, no. Arona, I don't, I don't want to abuse you. I don't want to misuse you. I'm not going to steal stuff from you. First Chronicles 21, uh, I, I'll pay the full price. I will not bring a sacrifice to God that cost me nothing, he says in verse 24. And so he gives him 50 shekels of silver to buy the threshing floor, and then later on he gives him another 600 shekels of gold to buy the whole piece of land there, First uh, Chronicles 21-25. And so he builds the altar to the Lord, he prays, he brings the sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise and, and burnt offerings, if you compare Samuel and Chronicles again. And then God answers by sending fire from heaven and he burns up the sacrifices, says First Chronicles. And he tells the angel of the Lord, put away your sword. And so he has compassion on the land and he turns away the plague. He averts the plague. Now, I don't think the lesson here is to say that, oh, we need to do religious stuff so God can, can turn away and avert the coronavirus. Let's just be religious. Let's do, make sacrifices and, and then God will take away the virus. No, I don't think that's the lesson. I think the lesson is, to take it to the New Testament, Jesus brought an offering. Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice. So it's not a sacrifice that is cheap. He gave everything. I will not bring a sacrifice that cost me nothing. It cost everything. Not gold, not silver, not precious stones. First Peter tells us, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Not to avert the coronavirus, but to avert the anger of God. To avert the plague of hell. So do not just hope and long and pray and wish that God would turn away the coronavirus. Why not long and wish and pray to be forgiven and to have eternal life? What does it help? What does it help you escape the coronavirus? But you die without Jesus Christ. You die in your sin and you go to hell. Believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sin. Follow Christ. Be saved by Christ. Ask for salvation and forgiveness. Ask that he would declare you innocent and not guilty and righteous through his blood and through his life. Ask him to cleanse your conscience. To adopt you into his family. To sanctify you. To make you progressively more like Jesus Christ. To give you eternal life. Seek this God with all your heart and all your soul. Seek Him, seek Him 
more than the World Health Organization is seeking for a solution to the coronavirus.